Hello everyone, it's good to be back and wishing you a very happy new year. It's Friday the 8th of January and this is episode 37 of the Kite Podcast with me, Ben Eagle. And me, Will Evans. Yes, we are back. We've rebranded, regenerated like Doctor Who and have imaginatively become the Kite Podcast 2021. Incredibly, at not quite the 11th hour, a trade deal was struck with the EU and the bonus Brexit-themed podcast that we had been planning to put out at the end of last year was no longer needed. Thank you, politicians. But with the trade deal done and dusted, you'd think, listeners, that we don't need to talk about Brexit anymore. But I'm afraid we're going to continue the pain a little while longer because this episode is all about, you guessed it, Brexit. Now that we actually know what the trade deal looks like, what does the picture look like for British dairy in the short term and what might it mean for the longer term? To find out, we are joined by Kite's managing partner, John Allen, Eric Elgesmer, former director of strategic intelligence at Friesland Campina and director and founder of strategic analysis services BV, which is a strategy, business development and competitive intelligence consultancy firm based in the Netherlands and once again, we're joined by everybody's favourite dairy market analyst, Chris Walkland. Welcome to the show, everyone. Chris, over to you first for the very first uh, Kite Podcast Milk Market Update of 2021. How was your Christmas and did you miss us? Of course I did. I missed you all. Oh, and um, thanks very much for the Sunday to Saturday embroidered underwear set, Becky. Very useful. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> happy new year, everyone. And this morning I'm Happy New Year. On... Thank you very much. <laughs> this morning I'm sitting on the white cliffs of Dover, but I'm not happy at all. In fact, I'm fuming. Ask me why. Why, uh, Chris? Why? <laughs> well, for four years we've been promised Brexit Armageddon after we finally leave that wicked European Empire. And there's nothing a journalist likes more than a story about the end of the world especially to take our minds off that cursed COVID. And now after Brexit, of course, Britannia is supposed to be sinking beneath the waves, not trying to rule them again. But it isn't sinking thanks to Boris's terrible deal. But if this is how it's going to be, then it's going to be a lot harder for hacks like me to peddle Brexit-related disaster stories. (laughs) I mean, we've got columns to fill and listeners to scare. (laughs) What are we going to talk about now? He's left us in the lurch. Well, I haven't a clue, so I'm going to get on with my market report straight away. Milk commodity prices have crashed within the first few days of Brexit, (laughs) with prices way lower than those predicted by the most gloomiest of traders as farmers' leaders fear the annihilation of the sector. Chris, that's just not quite true, is it? Do you want to just try again? (laughs) Okay, well, maybe it's not quite as bad. How about this? Journalists and commentators who, for months, have warned of the carnage and bedlam that Brexit might bring have seen their worst fears come true in dramatic fashion this week. Bit of an exaggeration too, isn't it? (laughs) No, it isn't. Well, it is. And you've been one of the journalists that's been warning of the carnage, haven't you? (laughs) No, I haven't. Uh, Yes, you have. Moving along. It's not pantomime season still. (laughs) Oh, yes, it is. (laughs) Moving swiftly along anyway. 
actually, it's so far so good for dairy commodity prices in 2021, despite the UK going its own way out of Europe. With few major Brexit-related concerns seen so far, aside from those centering on exports of cream and fresh product as traders get to grips with the new regime and red tape. Much better, much more moderate. The lack of exports means the cream price hasn't picked up, but is doing so from its Christmas lows. It's now around £1.20 to £1.25 a kilo, and that's way below EU prices, but not nearly enough for decent liquid milk prices. It needs to lift and fast. But I do expect some practice runs on exports this week or next, and then we'll see how it all transpires. But currently, the UK is way below EU prices on cream. Generally, there is no doubt that a deal uh, uh, that was done before Christmas will um, will mean traders return after the break in far more optimistic uh, style than when they left. And that's a massive positive. Already, we're seeing that uh, transpired in slightly better butter prices. Uh, and on that front, there's good news in the fact butter stocks are slightly down again. Lockdown is here, and that's quite good for butter sales with home baking. And the GDT saw butter soar uh, again. So it's actually put on $1,200 since September. And that's a significant increase, uh, of course. Uh, it means that butter prices in Europe are now closing in on that 3,500 target. They're about 3,350 euros at the moment. It's the same story for skim milk powder. That's up slightly too. So back to that GDT, the increase in the first auction was 3.9%, making it seven increases out of eight and taking commodities to the highest they've been since December 2019. And with skim powder at its second highest level since January 2016. And the commodities convert to a nice 29p by my reckoning. Futures increased, they soared uh, on the back of it in New Zealand and in the EU too. And we've got three 28p prices on the futures board for quarter two. We didn't have any uh, a few months before that. Prices are slightly better in New Zealand. Back in the UK, cheese is the same as it was. It never moves over Christmas or the new year. But again, in Europe land, curd and gouda and mots, they're slightly up too. So three cheers for Europe, Eric. Spot milk still recovering, but there's still plenty of milk around still, probably a bit too much for comfort. So there you are. There are more positives at the start of 2021 than you can shake a Ramona stick at. But don't go mad on milk volumes. The Brexit shakeout is still unfolding. Covid is worse than ever. And the flush isn't far away. Goodbye. <laughs> Thank you, Widow Twanky. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I've, I've missed these Friday mornings. Um, John, Happy New Year. Um, good to see you again. Uh, it's the 8th of January today, obviously, and the trade deal with the EU was signed and sealed on Christmas Eve. Um, Chris has given us the, you know, relatively mixed picture, um, but there are there are plenty of positives to take away, perhaps more than we thought about, thought there might be to start the year um, in the markets. But in terms of short-term prospects, 
How do you think things are looking for UK dairy right now from, from where you're sitting? Yeah, well, first of all, Ben and, and Will and everybody, it's great to see you. Uh, we're all locked in again, but looking uh, <laughs> forward to finally escaping at some stage during this year. And uh, it, it was, it, I must say, it was great news uh, when, when we did hear that there was a deal because uh, real politic kicked in. We said it would, didn't we? Do you remember, Chris? We, we had that on our programme in the autumn and we thought that Boris couldn't go to the end and actually see no deal because we were really on the edge of a crisis. If we'd have been sitting here today with a COVID crisis like we've got, with t- mm. uh, trucks at the port in Dover like we had just before Christmas and no deal, I tell you what, he would have been political mincemeat. So, yeah. you know, from that point of view, deal was done. Fishermen were sold down the river. It doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, we've got a deal. And and I guess, you know, that's positive. And I think uh, we've done some work with Eric. We, we've worked with Eric now for over a couple of years and he's a great guy and he's going to tell us a little bit more about the long term. But in terms of the short term, uh, looking forward into this year, then I think we're fairly positive, actually. Um, so just reasons to be cheerful um, beyond what Chris said about short term markets uh, with GDT, etc. We've got a bounce back in the economy expected to, due to vaccinations. I think GDP, world GDP is projected to grow by over 5 percent, which is fantastic. Um, but once we get through this crisis. And potentially that could affect the demand side. Uh, supply side is fairly balanced and around 1.3% growth year on year, excluding China and India. And uh, sorry, India and Pakistan. Um, so actually, um, the, I think the prospects and uh, and certainly Eric can confirm it would be reasonably pros- positive into the second half of this year. The only negatives we've got in the UK, I would have said, are as Chris has alluded to. We've got a bit this big move to block carving, um, both in the autumn and in the spring, and that's going to put a big pressure on the UK in terms of the spring flush, uh, which is uncertain at present. And we've got some negatives on feed costs. Um, we think about half of producers are currently covered for um, till April this year, so feed costs aren't projected to increase on their farms, but on other farms the feed costs at present look like they could add a penny a litre to production costs. But it's too early to say yet because Mm. we've yet to see the spring and in terms of how those feed markets adjust. Mm. So a bit of a mixed picture, but overall, I'll take it. Compared to where we were on the 23rd, um, then we'll have this any day. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned a couple of challenges there. Um, From a listener's perspective, though, I mean, are there any particular external challenges or, or threats that that listeners should be aware of in the immediate short term well the feed costs we've alluded to um so i do think that's a threat um and, and we'll have to watch that because you know if the dairy markets remain stable to potentially improving then that will help but if your costs are going to go up and they potentially are it's not just feed costs labor costs as well we we anticipate will go up for various reasons then, you know, it, it, there is that as a negative, definitely. Um, the, the sentiment in the UK market won't be that good, I suspect, in, in the spring, because we'll have this overhang of spring milk, and I think that will affect sentiment in the market. So increases through the spring is probably unlikely because of that. Um, the other only thing you've got to look out for is currency. Uh, it's interesting at present that the UK currency has not strengthened very much as a result of the deal. 
So they must have been factoring that in. It's only gone up by one or two percent. Uh, and actually, a currency strengthening would be negative on milk price for the UK. Um, so you could argue that the weak currency, because of concerns about the UK economy um, with COVID and COVID being worse in the UK, apparently in terms of the economic impacts, then you could argue that that's actually helping dairy because we've got a, a, a currency that isn't strengthening as many would have expected. Chris, would you go, go along with that? Yeah, I would. I think sterling's the big one. The spring milk situation has been helped this year because uh, U-Tree Dairy have got added capacity this coming year that they didn't have last year. So that mitigates it to a certain extent um, on the volume side. Um, but it still is, is a worry. And hence me saying in my report, don't go mad on volumes. But I think yeah. sterling's the big unknown. You know, and it can it can creep up or down over a period of time. Um, and it's barely noticeable, but all of a sudden you realise that actually your milk price has gone down by 2p or happily mm. up by 2p simply because of sterling. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Eric, welcome to the show. Um, as someone who's sat in the Netherlands now, I'm working in the dairy sector at a strategic level. What's your view of the UK dairy sector and marketplace post-Brexit? Will, thanks for inviting me and thank you all for um, for having me. It's a pleasure to, to take a look from the continent to your situation and, and give a little bit of a perspective as an outsider, as you can imagine. And the first thing that crossed my mind when I read and heard about the deal uh, on Christmas Eve was that I felt well, very comfortable in having my uh, perception of the quality of British diplomacy being um, confirmed, which I always held in high esteem. And I think what you don't realize is how much you got out of the deal. I had not believed uh, that what is today, um, at least for, for a sector like dairy, what has been achieved by your diplomats and government that that had ever been possible knowing, say, the EU from the continental side. So the zero tariff deal and the uh, limited, relatively limited trade barriers that will result as uh, as a consequence of that, I believe uh, is, is a complement to what you from your side have achieved. The question, however, is, is that a relief? And... I mean, even if you, uh, I, I concur with what Chris has said, currency, um, the, the, the sterling exchange rate will determine a lot. But to me, the real question is when indeed we now have the certainty that we retain in what I would call the old normal, and you have no chaos at the border, etc., is that a relief? And when I analyzed for the past, say, uh, five, six years, the profitability of UK dairy processors, which was next to zero over a six-year period, the question is whether that old normal is such a great great place to be in. And I read some cynical, um, say, commentaries on the continental side of the deal saying, why would we worry if you give somebody, uh, say, the keys to a rental vehicle when they don't have a driving license anyway? So... When you, I don't want to offend you, but when you have, as in the dairy sector, when you have limited capabilities and limited, say, positions to compete in the, on the continent at the first place, 
why would the continent be worried of giving you tariff access? If you're a net importer in dairy, it may not be so much of a risk, even though, uh, of course, France and Germany and all the negotiators may have pretended to be able to basically give in to your demands. But what's the problem? So there is, there is an element that you may realize that, first of all, I don't think this fundamentally solves the UK dairy processing. I'm looking more at processing than farming, but certainly at UK dairy processing industries challenges. Because if things don't change, you certainly don't get better. Secondly, you still have massive imports from the continent, which will continue to flow and which will not enable, say, UK dairy processors to develop a better negotiation position with UK retailers, because you can still be played out against continental players, depending a little bit, as Chris already said, on the sterling. And thirdly, where is the consumer in all this, if your industry, if your dairy processing industry continues to be so moderately profitable, if at all, no one in that industry will have <clears throat> the means and resources to, to rebuild and strengthen the image of dairy with the consumer. Whereas those that are, say, substituting for dairy, for instance, based on vegetable or based on, on an animal welfare story or what have you, they will have those means. So, yes, you've done an absolutely brilliant piece of negotiation and you ended up with, with a trade deal looking from the continent that I believe is the best you could ever have. However, does that solve the fundamental problems of the UK dairy industry, processing industry? I doubt it because those are of a different nature and a, a very hard Brexit with less imports from the EU could have well been funnily enough, or maybe even paradox paradoxically, could well have been a benefit that you don't have now. I'm much more positive about UK dairy farming than about UK dairy processing. Because your dairy farm growth, especially when some processors develop, say, export opportunities, your dairy farm growth, I believe, could benefit from, from the the, the challenges that continental dairy farmers of traditional export countries face. The dairy processors, however, have to switch channels because if they keep relying on the UK retail channel as their main destination, they will not uh, become glamorously profitable. But the, I would say for, for the next, I don't know, five to 10 years, I'm much more positive about, unless the dairy processors really change, uh, change their mindset, I'm much more processors positive about the, the say prospects for dairy farmers and dairy processors actually in terms of uh, some of the scenario planning you were doing prior to uh, the deal uh, then you certainly highlighted that there could be opportunities for dairy in a hard brexit um and i guess you, you you're outlining now that i guess those dairy companies are gonna have to now uh, sit back, retrench, and think again what their strategy is going to be. At least they've got certainty, haven't they, Eric? Uh, I mean, I guess some certainty gives them an opportunity now to start to plan strategically what they're going to do in the UK. What, what, what would your views be on that? But to me, I see two different <clears throat> groups of, of UK dairy processors. The one group being they are subsidiaries of large international companies, call them Saputo, Muller, Muller, Arla, Lactali, Glenbia, Leprino, Lakeland, 
which is sort of British, sort of Irish. So those are subsidiaries and they have, say, their role to play within their holding. But ultimately, they are not after, say, success in Britain. They are after making money in Britain and returning dividends in some form or shape. They have role one. And then there's the local, locally owned, locally operated UK dairy companies, which process maybe 30% of the UK milk pool still. And they have strategies to make for themselves. And the latter, to the latter, I would say, if you're not in a niche and you, you can't get into such niche, consider what you, where you are today and how, how long-term viable your position will be. Because if your negotiation position based on a niche is not there, how can you ever compete in the long term with UK retail, which is more consolidated and which will continue to be, because you're on an island, have a stronger negotiation position than yourself if you don't have either an export position or a niche position to claim as, as a domestically owned and operated UK dairy firm. If you're part of an international firm, the game will always be played in a foreign head office. And then the ultimate question will always be, is the yield from the UK market satisfactory? John, you obviously uh, spend a lot of time talking to processors. Um, what do you think their sentiment is at the moment? Well, I think, I think, I think they're taking stock. Um, I mean, it's too early um, in terms of, uh, you know, they, they, they haven't come out with any plans, obviously, at this stage. But I think, I think that there's an element of relief uh, initially, because yeah, I, I take Eric's point in terms of there could have been opportunities, especially for some, but I think overall it was all the hassle and the crisis in the short term that they didn't really want to experience. And I guess now would be the time when they really need to sit down and think, like Eric's saying, in terms of what their strategies are. And, and, and I'm interested, Eric, in, in one sense, uh, how you view the UK now outside Europe as a potential platform for trading with the world if you were one of those EU uh, businesses that you know was you know was operating from within the EU but actually now operations in the UK that could actually export how how would you be viewing that Eric from your perspective it depends if if you're a continental dairy processor it depends on the role of the exports in your strategy if the exports that you're sending outside the EU as an EU 27 processor have the sole, say, uh, purpose of cleaning the EU 27 markets and keep prices at some decent level, and forgive me the word dumping some of your, your remains outside the EU 27, if only for price management within the EU 27, then the UK is not adding any value. If you're, <clears throat> if you're interested in, in building overseas market positions, why, why would you, say, um, take a step through the UK and move on to, for, uh, to third markets? I don't see an immediate role for a, for a continental European-based dairy <clears throat> in taking a step through the UK and moving forward, because also the EU has many free trade agreements. So what would be the purpose? How, how would you do it from the environmental piece, Eric? Because, I mean, Holland certainly has got major constraints over being able to produce any more milk environmentally. Would you see the UK as having any opportunities in that regard? 
definitely yes that but that's a different angle certainly right. but that's then you're talking in between now and 2030 and in between now and 2030 i would definitely see the uk both dairy farming and dairy processing is better positioned to serve the world markets than countries like uh, Holland or Denmark or even Northern Germany. Yeah, because you can see that the environmental constraints in Europe are going to be so strong. That... Given, yeah, indeed, John, given the high intensity of dairy farming per square kilometer in, in Holland and in parts of, of a few neighboring countries, that intensity has probably reached its limit, if has not already reached its peak. And that intensity, I guess, is not uh, present in most regions, dairy regions in the UK. So that intensity could, in, could be higher in the UK still without uh, massive domestic, let's say local for local environmental problems. Whereas in places like Holland and, and Northern Germany, the, those boundaries have been reached, if not surpassed. Just just wrapping this up, if we bring this back to the long term, and it depends actually what we're talking about when we say the long term, but from where you're sitting, how, how does the UK now compare against some of the key dairy producing and processing areas in Europe um, in terms of those long term opportunities? What are our conclusions here? I would say you have to split local for local markets for local for global so producing in the UK for the global markets or producing in the UK for the local markets. Now, that local for local situation is at the moment still, I would say, the dogma in the UK. I see very few UK-based dairy processors with a strong emphasis on uh, exports to non-EU countries. I wonder why that is. I think you have much more opportunity, especially moving beyond, say, Brexit, you have much more opportunity and it will relieve or strengthen your negotiation position with UK retail if you have an alternative to go with, where to go with the milk rather than having to sell it to UK retail anyway and them knowing it. So if I were, if I were uh, guiding anyone or advising anyone in the UK dairy industry, especially now that Brexit is clear, consider where can you be competitive and how in third country markets, and especially with the perspective that the uh, raw milk pools in tradi some traditional EU 27 dairy countries may well have peaked. And therefore, their export positions may well, say, um, become over time. Yeah, well, Eric, if, if um, you know, we've got to develop a new culture in terms of export, it, it's, I guess it's quite hard in a country where you know, margins are squeezed and we've been so focused on domestic markets with that overcapacity we've just touched on. I mean, how, how, how do you see that, trying to make that change? Well, my concern indeed is that you, you do face a very poor negotiation position already with your retail because the retail can choose from so many suppliers knowing that these suppliers don't have the export capabilities and positions in place. So they have to end up with a retailer. But what I didn't want to say, um, start with a gloomy outlook at the very first session of the year. But if, if you don't mind me being a little bit offensive, um, there is an underlying trend which we didn't cover so much, which is a lack of consumer interest in dairy or an, an increasing lack of consumer interest in dairy. So imagine your raw milk pool stays at the same volume 
your retailers stay uh, at least as aggressive as they are, and they have to for their own good reasons because of the entry of online, etc., and the, the whole shuffle of business models they are in. So they won't they won't give in. And now suddenly you discover that because nobody invests in the dairy category, the dairy volumes domestically shrink. So if you don't develop those export positions yourself, the only ones that you can basically rely on are dairy traders that will certainly not leave the margin with you because then they connect you with the end consumers in other parts of the world, but within that particular situation, they will extract the value from the connection because they know they uh, you have to depend on them. So if you as companies don't develop that forward connection to, uh, to third markets yourself, you certainly will depend on people that will not allow you to make money, just as the UK retail. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Ben and I are both off to ring around dairy processors and uh, look at milk and boilers to see, see if we can convert our farms to dairy. Um, but uh, thank you very much to our guests today, Eric Elgesmer, John Allen and Chris Walkland. Thank you very much for listening to this very first episode of 2021. It's great to be back. Uh, You've heard us say it before, but for Becky's sake, please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening so you never miss another episode. And if you're feeling really generous, then give us some love on social media and a retweet. We'll see you next Friday in Kite Podcast Land. But for now, it's goodbye from all of us here.